The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Baptist Church, we don't come to celebrate us. Father, we don't come to pat ourselves on the back or say, hey, look at us, or go get them, or you know, whatever. Father, we are simply people who have been blessed by your hand at this church. There are so many of our folks who are still alive who came, and they're, I think of our young brother Isaiah, who just had a birthday yesterday, in his early 20s here at church, Lord, and so many other of our young guys and gals who come, and they were that age those years ago, Father, when they came. Father, the legacy of faith in this church, despite um, at times lack of resource or space or finance or the big gizmos that other churches have, Lord, you have proved once again it's not about those things. It's about faithful people living faithfully before a super faithful God and sharing it all. Father, we pray for the wisdom and the future, what you may have for this church but Father, I pray that in, in, as we celebrate 60 years, about seven months from today, that you are lifted high, that the gospel is preached, that people are encouraged, people are connected. We're not just islands in this church, that we really are the body of Christ local here. We get to know people we don't know and be challenged by people we do. Father, that we would grow closer to each other, but mostly closer together under your banner. Father, I pray for these neighborhoods for Grace Moore and Maple Park. I pray that you help us to reach them by your grace that people would hear the gospel. Maybe it's online, maybe it's in person, whatever, but I pray people would know Jesus and grow in Christ. Father, we pray that there would be another generation passed on, that, that those who have grandkids now and seeing them grow up in this church, that those grandkids could grow up in this church and see the, the growth and, and, and the part of Christ being played here. Father, we are simply instruments in your hands, so we lay it all at your feet. Thank you for all those who worked on the Children's Center. I know there are many. I know that uh, at times it's frustratingly slow for some and fast for others. But, Lord, all of them are one body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And we thank you for each one of them. Father, we pray for that Children's Center as it gets into its final stages that you are lifted high. Thank you so much. Lord, all those things aside, may you be lifted high as we sing and as we worship you through the Scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. God's people said. Amen. Amen. If you are able this morning, Brother Brian gave you a sit break a little bit early today in a good way. We talked about that. I'm just kidding. If you're able to stand this morning, will you join us as we pray and read through Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Hebrews 2, 16 through 18, if you're able to this morning. I want to remind you we are in our book, our big series. We are in the book of Hebrews, greater than. The first chapter of Hebrews spoke of the deity of Christ. The second chapter has been speaking of his humanity. We're in kind of a mini-series in the big series the last three or four weeks called Why He Came. We finish that up today before moving on to chapter 3 next week. This morning, Why He Came, part 3, starting in verse 16, and we'll fill all those details as we move along. But hear these verses, you know them well, but hear them this morning anew by God's grace. He says, For surely it is not the angels that he helps, that God helps, but he, that is God, helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, in reference to Christ here in every respect, 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself, speaking of Christ, suffered when tempted, he, that is Christ, is able to help those who are being tempted. If you could have a baby, and I hear Tally back there singing and cooing back there, there's a word that we could teach our kids to say from the very first. Propitiation <laughs> might be one of those million-dollar words that you could get in someone's mouth because it talks about what he came for. Amen. This morning, he came to relate to us. We'll break that down in three points. But I want you to know our God is good. He is faithful. And guys, the book of Hebrews is all about Christ. Our lives, our churches, everything should be all about Christ. Amen. May it be about that. We pray for this morning. We're going to preach this. We're going to go through it. May you be encouraged and challenged, and may God bring his spirit among us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the word that you've given us. Lord, this isn't just any word. This isn't some political commentary and op-ed. This isn't a TED Talk. This isn't some fireside chat. This is the preaching of the word of God. This is greater than anything we'll see this evening at 530 as rich people tackle rich people. And, and call it sport. This isn't some commercial we'll laugh at. This, Father, there is joy to be had here. There is laughter to be had in the scriptures at things. Just how marvelous and wonderful you are to us, to be sure. But, Lord, this is serious business. May we take it with a joy, but may we take it seriously. What a privilege it is to speak it one, to hear it another, but to live it out and to know it priceless. Father, we love you so much. We pray that you give us wisdom by your spirit this morning. For those online, in the cars, wherever they are, that you be blessed. We pray in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Well, this morning, as we come together, I, I just want to remind you of that. You know, sometimes we come to Sundays and we expect God just to open the heavens up and just to bring his glory down every time, every Sunday we meet. And in a sense, he does. But you're trying to remind you this morning that every Sunday we come, sometimes the monotony, the routine of Sunday is the most glorious thing you can do for your walk in Christ. Just like with exercise, yeah, there are some people who can go out and scale a mountain, having sat on the couch for the last six months with uh, uh, bonbons in their mouths and Krispy Kremes on the side. And those are great people. They're one in a, a million. But oftentimes, it's those people who spend it day in and day out who we celebrate the most because they've been disciplined to do it. Thank you for your discipline to be here as you can in these days. Well, there are some kids that need some discipline sometimes. If you see this picture above, you know the story, right? Hey, son, those cookies are not for who? You. Leave them alone. And a boy climbed up in a chair one time, and he started eating cookies off the kitchen counter. And his mother told him not to eat them, and his mom came back and entered the room and saw him with a mouthful of cookies and said, son, what are you doing? I told you not to eat the cookies. And with a mouthful of cookies again, the boy replied with crumbs coming out of his mouth, Mom, you don't understand. I got up here in the chair, and my teeth caught them, and I couldn't let them go. They wouldn't let me go, Mom. They just had to go in my mouth. Sounds about like everyone else. Or it sounds like our brother Leon at every men's dinner with the sweets. Amen, brother? That's right. Amen. He says amen to that. Look, temptation comes at you in many ways, doesn't it? Sometimes it's right in front of your face like a cookie dangling or like a carrot that you chase around a racetrack if you're a, a, a greyhound. But the reality is, is that from a human standpoint, temptations make sense. We want something, we think about something, we go get something. 
But when it comes to God, things are a little bit different. We are told that God can still be God, yet he was tempted. I mean, think about that for a second. When you look at the scriptures, did you have to ask yourself, did Jesus fail? When he was tempted with all sorts of dangly things that Satan threw at him, some we'll see and some we don't know about for 40 days, did he fail? Was he like that kid with the cookie in his mouth that said, I just had to get this because it's right in front of me? What's the difference here? You know, in Scripture, there are things called paradoxes. Guys, we feel about this way sometimes with the lady folk, don't we? How can you do this one time and do this the next and this the next and this? We can't ever figure it out. It's like jello on a tree. But there are paradoxes in Scripture just like this. I mean, think about it for a second. We believe that God is one God. Brother Brian talked about this. He's in three persons. Yet they're all co-equal. They're all co-eternal. We call that the Trinity. Is God one or three? And the answer is yes. 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 If Pastor Nelson are here, he likes these yes answers. Is Jesus God and man? The answer is church is yes. Is the Bible God's word? Yes. Is it written by man? Yes. Look, the Bible's full of paradoxes. Some things you have to accept by faith. Not a weak faith, not a faith that's on a crutch, not something like that. But Deuteronomy 29, 29, the brother Jeff loves this verse, says the secret things, doesn't it, belong to the Lord. There are some things in Scripture that God says you must take at face value simply by faith alone. When you became a Christian, did you have to have all your theological I's and T's crossed and dotted so that you became a Christian? I hope not, because you may never become a Christian. Because it's all more about your mental exercise than it is about the movement of your heart. But the Bible says you confess with your mouth, and with your heart you are saved, and you are justified. So friends, here's a paradox for you, a mystery. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great is the mystery of godliness. Perfect deity took on sinless humanity. Omnipotence became weary. Omniscience grew in knowledge. Holiness was tempted. Sovereignty became a servant. Self-existent God as he was, was nursed by his mother at her breast. Omnipresence was confined to a womb. Can you explain that to me? I can't. But I want you to know today, we're going to talk about the temptation of God in Christ. Because he came to relate to us. Here's the big idea today, and you'll see it on the screen. Is that Jesus defeated temptation so that when you're defeated by temptation... You would not be judged by your record, but rather by his. And let me tell you, Jesus backs 100. He's never lost the game. He's never gone into overtime. He always kicks the winning field goal, and no one has ever tried to outdo him. He's never had a tie. He always wins. How would you like to have a ping pong match with Jesus every now and then? I'm just kidding, but you get the point. Our God reigns. And Jesus has walked in your shoes, Christian. Church, he's walked in our shoes as a leader of spiritual people. He's walked and he's been tempted in all ways, yet he was without sin. That is a paradox that we will look at. But I want you to know that faith is not simply trying harder. Faith is trusting what God says about himself in the scriptures and the scriptures alone. And today you can celebrate even though your heart may be fickle, even though your heart may be far away. You may be tempted to, to run away from God that Jesus is faithful. And he came to do that for you. You have, uh, I believe it's up on the screen next, we've been going through these. This is what Jesus came for. He came as a man to recover lost creation. This is on your bulletin. He came as a man to redeem sinners. Last week we looked how he routed the devil. He sent him with his tail between his legs back to where he came from. 
So this morning, he came to relate to his people. No other God would do such a thing. That's blasphemy in other religions. But he came to do three things this morning, three reasons why Jesus came to relate to his people. You can fill the blanks in as you go. Let's look at that first one. He first off, here it is again, he came to rescue us from our sin. He came to rescue us from our sin. Look back at verse 16. Note what he says here. He says, for assuredly, or perhaps your Bible may say something different here, for, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He helps the offspring of Abraham. And what that means is, is we have to have a quick history lesson. Because Abraham is the father of the Jewish faith. If you know any Jew, you know they hearken back to Abraham and Moses and the prophets. And rightfully they should. But as a Christian, we take it a little bit deeper. He says there, for assuredly, there's no controversy here. There's no room for debate. We can disagree on some things of scriptures, but what Christ came to do, first off, is he came to save sinners. He did not come to save angels. You know, there's a movie. I, there's always movies, aren't there? A few years ago where uh, I believe it was the, the Saturday, John Travolta was his name. John Travolta became an angel, and he had to make a choice at the end of the movie. Was he going to stay an angel, or was he going to become a man? Was he going to stay an angel, or was he going to become a man? Because, of course, he fell in love and... You know, guys, that's, that is Hollywood. Let Hollywood be Hollywood. Angels cannot be saved. Angels cannot. Angels don't need to be saved. There's no savior for them. In fact, in Revelation 12, when we read about when Satan and his angels, uh, the third of heaven, tried to rebel against God, it, he made very clear there, there's no second chance for those angels. They are where they are. Jesus did not come to save angels. Jesus doesn't need to save angels. He came to save you. He came to save me. He came to save sinners such as us. And we don't need to fight against flesh and blood. We battle against things we cannot see. So what happens to those angels? Matthew 25 tells us that eternal fire has been prepared, Jesus said, for the devil and his angels. I'm going to use a D word that is in context. It's not a cuss word, but God will damn them someday. That is a biblical definition. God will damn them forever and ever and ever. Brother Dave, I thought about you this week because you and I's favorite book is one and the same. It's the book of Jude. Jude talks about this, how they were held in chains, in eternal fire, those angels. God, by his grace, did not turn his eye to angels when he came to relate to us. He turned his eye to us, not the angels. Aren't you grateful for that? That's why angels cannot believe God would do such a thing. He didn't save those wicked demons now. Why did he save these even crazier wicked humans? But he did. So he says they're descendants of Abraham. Now this is where it gets really, bear with me for a second. Who are the descendants of Abraham? Well, there's a physical line through Abraham, which is, which is the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. But more so, and, and, and this is all throughout scripture, but there's a spiritual side. All those who believe in Jesus are called Abraham's descendants. It's not on the screen, but I'm going to read it to you. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. Just listen. It says, Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ to put on Christ. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Look, we get so caught up in our end times theology. What's Israel going to do? What's Israel going to do? Do you know what the new Israel is? 
It's all those who call upon the name of the Lord. That is the new Israel, guys. That's what he says. Who are Abraham's descendants? You and I are if we're in Christ. That's what we know. Jesus came to give help to all those who would believe in him. And you notice that word help. I don't know what your verse says there in verse 16. You might have the word help. I know other translations have other things. He helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, if you read that, you might think, well, God just gives everyone a leg up. He gives them a little head start. He gives them some extra bonus points so when they run out of their bank account, they, they have a little head start. That is not what we believe. Our Catholic brothers and sisters believe that. They believe you've been infused, I-N-F-U-S-E, with grace. God gave you a little boost when you got when you got baptized as a baby so that you might have a better chance to get in heaven someday when you die. Friends, that's not what our Bible says. Our Bible says that we are dead in our sins. The only thing we infused into ourselves was more sin, on sin upon sin. But when Christ came, he gave us grace upon grace upon grace. Amen? And that's what we know. So literally, this word help here is the same word Peter used when he was walking on the water, and he was walking confidently, and then he took a plunge down, and he said, Lord, save me! And he reached down, didn't he? And he pulled him right up. Same word. Or it's the same one. Literally, it means Jesus took his hand. It means to take hold of. Or Jesus, when they came asking him in Luke 9.30, they asked him, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And, and, of course, Jesus said, you know, the one who's closest to me, right? No. He said, bring me a little kid. Bring me that snotty-nosed, runny-nosed, coffee kid, and put him on my knee. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. They'll be like those who are like this child. That's what he said. And you know what Jesus did with that child? He took hold. He helped that child. Amy will put this up. Salvation, this is on your notes. Salvation is the exchange of all that we are for all that Jesus is. Salvation is the exchange of all we are, all the stuff, the wickedness, the rebelliousness, the sinfulness of us for all that Jesus is. Holy, perfect, righteous, everything. Salvation is the exchange of all that we are. Look, salvation is not God reaching down like in the Sistine Chapel, reaching down to us to give us a hand up. He literally came down to lift us up to heaven. Salvation is not reaching out to God. It is, in a sense, God reaching down to us, but he literally had to come down to us. He came that he might give aid to all people who call upon his name. Look, there is no other name under heaven by which we are saved except Jesus Christ. Read an article last night on Apple News for whatever that whatever great credibility that brings, right? But uh, they, they shared about the Indians, comedians, comedians in India, who when they start talking about the Indian gods in a negative, funny way that we'd all laugh at, they get arrested and thrown in jail. And friends, I want you to know that if the Hindus can be offended by people making jokes in a stand-up five-minute comedy routine about their gods, that we ought to be offended when someone else says that I can get to heaven by myself. Because I'm good enough, I try hard enough, God gave me a boost enough, that is blasphemy in God's eyes. It took Christ himself coming down to save us. And he did that for his glory and our good. He helps Abraham's offspring, who are all those who call upon the name of the Lord. Galatians 3, Romans 9 through 11, go on and so forth. So he came to rescue us from sin. That's the first way he relates to us. The second way he relates to us, this will be on your screen too, is to rep 
us before God. That's a shorthand way to represent us before God. Look at verse 17. He says, writer of Hebrews, whoever it is, says, Therefore, based on this, that he helps people, he, those who call upon his name, he helps, based on all these things. Therefore, he, that is Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make, there's that word, propitiation for the sins of the people. This is a whole sermon in itself. But I want you to know, he came to represent us before God. I am grateful that sometimes, as I grow as an adult, that we can vote people out of office if we get enough votes, right? You can move that bar down, down the line and let it be what it is. God can never be voted out. God can never be taken out of office. God is supreme. He is in charge, and he is large and in charge because he holds all power, all authority in heaven and on earth. And that is our God. But Christ had to be made like his brethren. You see that in verse 17. So could God in heaven have declared forgiveness as he made the world? No. It says here he had to come. Because of God's unrighteousness, he can't wink at sin. I mean, if you knew someone, if, if you knew someone who was murdered, and you were there to see it, and you know for sure who that person is, and you go to trial and you say, it's that man. He's the one who did that crime. And it comes to sentencing day, and the judge looks at that person and says, you know what? You spent 30 days, and you've had a clean record for 30 days in jail during this trial. I'm going to be gracious to you today. I'm going to let you off. You can go home scot-free. If you're of any right mind, if you have a right mind in that moment, you're going to be on every news station telling them that there is a judge more wicked than the man that should have been sentenced and sitting on that boot and that bitch, right? When you do that, our God does not weak at sin. He literally had to come down because of this. Why? Look at, the, look at the next part of the verse. He says he had to be made like us so that he could be a merciful and gracious high priest. He... Aren't you grateful for that? Jesus is accessible. You can go to him. Jesus is there. He's beside you. He's with you. He's there for you. And you notice that word high priest. Now, some of you who know the book of Hebrews, you know this word is going to be used over and over and over. It's not my goal today to go over every nuance of high priest, but I want to at least talk about it for a second. We have the whole book of Hebrews till next February to figure that out. But I want you to know that a high priest was chosen by the people, commissioned by God to represent the people before the throne of God. And in Leviticus 16, in the Day of Atonement, that high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. He would make an atonement for the people, and only the high priest could do that. And from about 1500 B.C., give or take, don't get my dates right here, to the time of Christ, the high priest was going into the tabernacle. But it was always an inferior sacrifice. It never really forgave sins. Go back to chapter 1. And, of course, we know until Jesus came, when he died on that cross, he entered the Holy of Holies, didn't he, on our behalf. He sprinkled the mercy seat with his own blood and made atonement for our sins. He represented us before God. But to represent us before God, he had to identify us with us. He had to be qualified to represent us. Hebrews 5.1 says, in shorthand, that every high priest chosen from among the people is appointed to be act on behalf of men in relation to God, but 
in order that he can deal with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Friends, no angel could be high priest. The Father could not be high priest. The Holy Spirit could not be high priest. It could only be the God-man who could come to take us and represent us before God. Look, there were many before Christ as high priests that represented us. They were always imperfect. But why did he become a man? So that on that day of judgment, when Satan and those third of those demons stand accusing you, saying, you will never believe what this guy did on earth. You'll never believe the sin that was in his life. You can look at your Savior, your high priest, your advocate, and he will look at Satan and say, shut up, Satan. Put a sock in it. I know everything they did, and I don't care. I died for them. I love them because I'm a faithful and merciful high priest and gave my life for them. My son and daughter go to heaven. One day, people say, I'll argue my case with God. No, you will not. Every mouth will be shut. You will need someone to plead for you, and Christ did that. The theme of Jesus being the high priest is the theme that Christ actually cares for you. He loves you, and church, he loves his churches. This is the great commission being lived out is the local church 101. Hebrews 3.1. I'm just going to go through these basically. You don't take notes on these. We're getting to the next thing. Hebrews 3.1. He's the high priest of our confession. Hebrews 4. We have a great high priest who is tempted like us without sin. Hebrews 5. He was designed by God. The high priest was. Jesus as high priest is one forever. Hebrews 6. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Speaking of Christ. Hebrews 8.1. We have such a high priest. Christ appeared as a high priest. What was the effect? Look back at verse 17. What was the effect? He tells you at the end of verse 17. He says, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. All right, you got your, let's wake up. We're 20 minutes in. You need your exercise. Say this with me. Propitiation. Now go and press your friends after church and tell them that. Before you turn on the big game later, go up to your friends and say, I have learned a word today. Propitiation. You can say it faster than that. That's how I have to do it. Propitiation. What's it mean? It literally means it literally means to appease wrath, to satisfy wrath, to satisfy anger. And I want you to remind yourself that the wrath of God abides on every sinner. Every person outside of Jesus Christ is against Jesus Christ. They're not partly for him. They're not naturally bent towards him. John 3.16, we love that. Don't we? We, 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 we? we preached that at Brother Don's funeral just a couple weeks ago because it's so true. But so often we are left with the impression there's only love coming from the throne of God. Christian, I want to remind you that that is true. There is more love in John 3.16 than we can know, but I want you to know there is also wrath coming from the throne of God. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed in present tense from heaven. So how will that wrath go away? How does it get satisfied, appeased? Well, a holy God who hates sin, how do we get in? It's only because Christ met all the requirements of the law. Because Christ was perfect when you were not and I was not. Because he suffered under that wrath. He took that, as we read at the start, that, that knife that Abraham was going to plunge into Isaac. He took that knife, the father did, so to speak, and he plunged it into his son and said, You die for the sins of my people. Who are his people? Look back at verse 11. Do you remember who those are? Look back at Hebrews 2.11. He tells you who those people are. 
Who are the ones that he died for? He died specifically for those he sanctified. This is why, verse 11, he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Christian, he died for all those that he would save. Who are all those that he will save? All those who call upon the name of the Lord. Who are all those who will call upon the name of the Lord? I don't know and you don't know. Go share the gospel and let's figure it out. But I want you to know that's what he came to do. God cannot inflict wrath upon wrath, but he can inflict wrath upon the God-man. Two things here. Amy, if you just want to put up the first one first. First application is this. I think our church has a space covered, but I never want to assume. If you, if at a church you never ever hear about the righteous wrath of God unleashed either at the cross or in hell, run for your spiritual life. I don't think I have to tell you by any way, shape, or form that we live in a society today that talking about hell and judgment and wrath is something we just don't do. I'm going to ask for a show of hands. It's been a couple of years. Actually, it's been since fall 2018, according to my notes, last time I asked this. How many of y'all have ever heard a sermon on hell, just hell by itself? It's about half the room. That's surprising. Because many of you are of a generation where that was almost every week, wasn't it? I mean, the hellfire and brimstone, pound the pulpit preachers, that, and, and that's fine. But I want you to know, if you were to ask most people today if they've heard a sermon on it, who are not of most of the people who raise their hand today, most would say, I've never heard it. We believe in a literal hell that's prepared for Satan and his angels and all those who reject Jesus Christ. Jesus is, God is as much present in hell as he is in heaven. He's not soothing wounds, he's inflicting wrath. And if that, were, if that scares you and you're not a Christian, it ought to scare you. And I mean that, and I love you. It ought to scare you. Because there's coming a day that you'll stand before God and give account for yourself. But if you're a Christian and you hear the wrath of God preached, it ought to fuel your flame for Jesus to say, Thank you, Lord. You took that for me. You related to me. You repped me before God. Second thing I want you to see is this. I want to get really down in the dirt here. If at the cross the holy wrath of God was satisfied, then a gospel-flavored church offers a non-accusing place of rest. There are a lot of words. What's that? Just speak it straight. What's that mean? It means that nothing in this church should ever divide us. Nothing in this church should ever be talking about each other behind backs. No decision in this church, whether big or small, should ever be enough to send you running from this church unless it is something that we have done in sin, false teaching, error, or is just blasphemous to God. Now, does God move people from churches to churches? Yes, he does, occasionally. I have no hobby horse here. I have no axe to grind with that statement. My point is, is that sometimes in church life, my job as a leader is to get you focused on each other and remind you, like Pastor Brian, Pastor Nelson have to do, it's not, we're not the enemy, guys. The enemy has been defeated, and he's got people out there he wants to take with him. Our job is out there. It's not fighting in here. So to use the proverbial color of the carpet, Jeff, this carpet is not worth fighting over. It's about having a good discussion over, perhaps. But the way we treat each in this church is a great representation about how we truly believe the wrath of God has been satisfied. If you're angry at someone in this church, then you're showing that you don't truly believe that the wrath of God has been satisfied. Because you're taking forward something God has already said, I'm done with. 
be careful. And I speak that for myself, speak that for all of us here, wherever you're at. This church is safe for the third week in a row. Gossip, no. Hatred to each other, no. Backbiting, no. Indecisions, fighting over things, stop it. It's been done. This place is a place of encouragement and growth and hugs and kisses or whatever you do in COVID time. Elbow bumps, right? Because we are in this together. Don't let little things divide us in this church. The greatest thing that Satan wants is for this church to fight over stuff that don't matter. Stop it. Christ said, you matter, and I came for you. Focus on that, and when you focus on that, everything else you may have opinions about would disagree. You pray for our Southern Baptist Convention as well. I'm sick of this stuff. The politics, the backbiting, the conservative Baptist network, this network, or we got guys, if our convention would spend as much time Stop fighting each other and focusing on the gospel of Christ. Our whole nation would be transformed. But don't forget, it starts right here at Tower View Baptist Church and the relationships we have. I love our Southern Baptist Convention, but if we bite each other off, we're losing exactly what Christ came to do. The wrath of God has been satisfied. Don't let your wrath or somebody else be unsatisfied because you have a bone to pick. You talk to them. You go to them one-on-one. If that doesn't solve the sin, you take two or three witnesses. If that doesn't solve it, you bring it for the church. You don't harbor it. You don't bitter it. You let Christ settle it, and you do it as a brother or sister, brother, brother, whatever. I hope I'm being clear. I have nothing in my mind in any situations I'm preaching of. But one reason why the best pastors you have are the people. I'm going to put a caveat. This is not me patting ourselves on the back. The best pastors you have are your local church pastors. Don't let internet radio preachers become your pastor. We're preaching the things that we know happen in this church. That's why we preach it the way we do. He came to represent you. What an awesome God he is. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the last point. He came to represent us. He also came, he also came, number three, to relate to us in our temptation. It says he was tempted. Friends, verse 18 says he was tempted. This looks back to a time on earth when he was a man in the form of a servant. He was a man. He was a genuine human being. I mean, uh, he was tempted. But we're, you know, a real question is, were the temptations of Jesus real? Have you ever thought about that before? I mean, Jesus is God, so can he really be tempted? Is that really a thing? It is. It says he himself has suffered when tempted. It's pretty straightforward. Jesus actually was tempted for you and for me. If you want to hold your spot there, go to Luke chapter 4. We're going to camp out there for a couple minutes. Go to Luke chapter 4. Several books to your left, but Luke chapter 4. I want to take you back to that temptation. I want to remind you what it is. You know, how can we know that he was tempted? Because we see exactly what the scripture says. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I want to remind you of this. And Jesus, verse 1, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by who? By the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity is leading the second person in his humanity and deity to the wilderness to be what? Tempted by the devil. Now, I want you to know something. Because he was the Son of God, Satan unleashed all his artillery, and he was not letting any, he just, it was boom, 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 boom. We're going to look at those three temptations you know well, but I want to remind you this morning, for 40 days nonstop, Jesus was tempted. You imagine? We see the highlights, the highlight reel, the 15 seconds of the sports center type stuff, but we have to remember 
We so often give into temptation before it reaches its highest point. These temptations reach their highest point, and Jesus really did not sin when he really was tempted. It's a, is it? Let me be clear here. Is it a sin to be tempted? What do you think? It's not. It's a sin to cave into that temptation. I am tempted to eat a lot of sweet things all the time. Amen? I'm not saying it's a sin, but man, you can get in that gluttonous sin pretty quick. You get me to CeCe's Buffet, I can, woo. We walk a fine line every time God and I walk into CeCe's. And I mean that. It is not a sin to be tempted. It is a sin to sin. And here's what I want you to see. The first temptation here, first temptation is he says, uh, Satan says to him, he says, and he ate nothing during those days, verse 2, and when he was hungry, the devil said to him, verse 3, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus said to him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Look, we often say when Satan comes to speak the word of God, and we should, but I want to remind you, it's not just that he spoke the word of God, it's that Jesus fully obeyed the word of God in route to that success over temptation. A lot of people have a lot of scriptures plastered all over their walls and have more Bibles than they can count. But sometimes they give them temptation quicker and easier than some people will. Temptation number two. He says down in verse four, verse five, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to you whom I will, if then you will bow down to worship me. Or, whoop, did I read that the wrong way? Yep, worship me. If all will be yours, and Jesus said to him, verse 8, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Look, worship me. Jesus said, You shall worship God alone. He fights that. And he's still doing this today. You need someone to come to your aid to relate to you, because it's not by my mind or by my spirit, saith the Lord. Is all through him. And the final temptation, you know this. He goes in Luke chapter 4, verse 9, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He'll command his angels concerning and guard you, and oh, on their hands they will bear you up unless you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time came. You want to go back to Hebrews. The point of all this I want you to get this morning is that Jesus fully, really did get tempted for you and for me. And I am so grateful. We go back to Hebrews and we'll close with this. The result of that, look back at verse 18. You know where this is headed. Verse 18, for because he himself is tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Christian, I want you to know Pastorally, Christ has faced things. Did he face every temptation? Did Jesus face a temptation of gender dysphoria? I don't, I don't think so. Did Jesus face a temptation about playing a video game or not playing a video game that's unhonoring to God? I don't think so. But I want you to know that despite the fact he may not have gone through every temptation known to man, he was going through temptation, and he knows what it's like, and he can relate to you in your temptation, even as holy God. In the wilderness, and Amy will put this up, Satan tempted Jesus with having his best life now. A life of temporal prosperity without sacrifice or suffering. The one thing Satan got us on is that he promised Jesus everything if he would just soul, sell out his soul right now. Yes, that's a play on words from a best-selling book by a smiley preacher from Texas many years ago. 
But I want you to know, if you follow Christ, your best life is every moment you're with Christ. It's in heaven. It's now. It's when you're tempted. It's when you're tried. It's when life doesn't make sense because Christ has been there and he's walking with you by the power of the Spirit. Church, I want you to know that. I'll be completely honest with you. We may be presented with an offer to buy our property. And we look around these buildings and, and look at the, the need to repair and the cost that it will take and questions about loans or not loans or raising money, not raising money, all the things that we have to go through. And I want you to know that you need to pray. You need to pray that we're not tempted to be have worldly gain, to make a mountain for ourselves. You need to pray that whatever decisions we make, whether we stay here, we move, we sell, whatever we do, that it's honoring to God. And I want you to know Jesus was presented with every one of those. We're not building Tower View Baptist Church's kingdom. We're building the kingdom of God. Whether that's here or Nigeria or wherever we are, it's for God's glory. And he gives us a way of escape. You're struggling with sin this morning. I want you to know your Savior gets you. He understands you. And he's walking beside you with perfect power to help you through it. Muhammad didn't do that. You ready for the list? Buddha didn't do that. Krishna didn't do that. Confucius didn't do that. Baha'u'llah never did that. I ran by the Mormon temple the other day, and Joseph Smith sure didn't do that. Our Christ did that. He came to relate to you. As we close, if you're here this morning, I just want you to know if you do not know Jesus Christ, the greatest thing we can offer you is he knows it, he gets it, he cares, he loves you. And I want to tell you this morning, I don't have all the answers. I don't. Pastor Brian, he's super smart, does not have all the answers. Our deacons, Jim and Steve, don't have all the answers. Whoever it is doesn't have all the answers, but our God does. What are you struggling with this morning, Christian? What is it that you need to take before him and seek him with this morning? He's worthy, he's able, and he can do it. What an awesome God we serve. Let's pray together, and we'll sing our last song and be dismissed. Lord, thank you so much as we close out this morning. Father, we thank you that we know that our Savior is worthy to be praised because he has related to us. He saves sinners such as us. He represented us before you, Lord. He also was tempted like we are. Yet, Lord, when we are tempted and we fall to that temptation, he doesn't judge us by our record of imperfection. He judges us by his own record, which is perfectly, holy, righteous, without blemish or stain or sin. Father, we thank you. We thank you for these first two chapters of Hebrews we have labored through the last six or seven weeks. That through them we have been reminded that you are the holy God of the universe. 